European literature and it's very hard to and this is English literature which is not quite European literature but what happens in Europe is equally important over here especially at this point of time yeah uh, in the secular sphere uh, Henry the uh, so we have finished all that kind of thing yeah or can we just no 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 I, I think we will get into a lot of stuff yeah uh, if then we are asked to name a date and even a period when the Middle Ages came to an end, what can we safely say? Certainly not 1485, the year when Tudor rule began, though it had been found by teachers and examiners a convenient peace point at which to wind up the Middle Ages in England. But in the year, the real year 1485, when one, our simple ancestors, uh, gaped and rubbed the elbow at the news that Henry Tudor and his Welshman had thrown Richard III at Bosworth, right? Now, he's got Welshmen with him, so Wales is joined again, yeah? They had no thought that a new era was, had, was beginning. They supposed merely that the Lancastrians had again got the better for the time of the Yorkist in the endless and tireless wars of the roses. It is true that the event of the next 20 years showed that in fact the Wars of the Roses had almost but not quite ended on Bosworth Field, but the end of the War of the Roses is by no means the same thing as the end of the Middle Ages, in whatever way the Middle Ages are defined, right? So we are talking about the end of the War of the Roses, right? And we are talking about the Middle Ages, right? And uh, the point that is being tried to make, that he's trying to make is, when we're talking about uh, the idea of the Middle Ages, right, uh, and we're talking about history by and large, right, one event doesn't mean that everything has stopped. Yeah, one event doesn't mean that everything suddenly changes with one event. Some of the things will change, some of the things won't change, right, and a lot of customs and traditions change, uh, perhaps, right, if there is a very harsh ruler, right, otherwise most of the things remain the same and there's slow kind of policy decisions uh, which affect people in the long run, yeah, and uh, yeah, we can talk about the history of India, right, and we are talking about how things slowly move ahead, yeah, uh, like for instance, the the idea of Shah Suri, right, yeah, uh, putting uh, trees around the Grand Trunk Road and all those kind of things. Whoever's uh, done that, yeah, he uh, uh, Suri uh, got the Grand Trunk Road, yeah, into operation, yeah. But then the question is, somebody else put trees over there, right? Now, what happens to those ideas today, right? Yeah. So it takes a long time before the ideas are put into practice. One. The second thing is, how did the culture change because of that? Okay, and that takes even longer, right? Because as we know about the Bible, okay, the Bible uh, in the King James Version of the Bible is uh, for a long time not read in even the church, it's read only afterwards, right? Yeah, so that's what happens over here. Uh, right, the victory of Henry the Welshman made no change distinctly compatible in importance to the victory of William the Norman of Hastings, right, yeah, so now you get, it doesn't matter, how does it matter to the common person who is the Prime Minister or the President of India, it doesn't matter, right, that's the kind of thing, for half a century after 1485, until Henry's son took the papal power and the monastic uh, wealth into his own hands, English society continued very much as I've described it in the last chapter, right? The agriculture, uh, so, uh, yeah, so what we're actually talking about is Henry VIII, right? And what happens with Henry VIII is that you get the whole idea of uh, him taking over the abbey, him taking over all the wealth of the church, right? And of course later it was returned now you can go and see it in Canterbury, yeah? But he looted the churches, right? Uh, he didn't destroy them, 
in any other way, right? And uh, uh, that itself is a kind of a, a kind of a discomfort, if not a kind of sacrilege, if the people are very religious, to touch the church things is some something that is uh, a problem, right? Yeah. That means you have touched sacred vessels, the anointed vessels. So all those kind of sentiments are with the people, right? Uh, yeah. English society continued very much as I've described in the in uh, the last chapter. The agricultural changes still continued as a slightly accelerated pace. The church went on just as before, though exposed to renewed unpopularity and denunciation, very similar to the anti-clerical outcry in the last days of Langman, Chaucer and Wycliffe. But there was no evident certainty that such strictures would have any, uh, any more practice, practical outcome this time than so often of old. Henry VII and Henry VIII were both zealots in their orthodoxy. They were dutiful in their roasting of heretics. They frequently employed bishops as the counsellors of state. After the medieval custom culminating in the grand finale of Cardinal Wolsey, who displayed on a colossal scale the pride and power of the medieval church. Himself, the instrument of papal power, he greatly increased its control over the ecclesiastic Sir Anglican, right? He, he, uh, he treated the late nobles and gentlemen like dirt beneath his feet, thereby helping to prepare the anti-clerical revolution that accompanied his fall. Right? He kept a household of nearly a thousand persons and marched in state with silver pillars and pole axes worn before him. Besides many other sources of wealth, he drew the revenues and neglected the duties of Archbishop of York, Bishop of Durham and Abbot of St. Albans. The biographer of Wolsey and of Henry VIII estimates that the cardinals was, uh, cardinal was almost as rich a man as a king. He obtained for his natural son four uh, archdiaconeries, a, uh, a deanery, five prebends and two rectories and only failed in his endeavour to have him succeed in the fabulously rich sea of Durham. In proportion to Wolsey's pride, luxury and greed, was the munificence in founding schools and colleges of splendor then unparalleled. Yeah. Here was a prince indeed of the cosmopolitan hierarchy of Europe before which men had bowed for centuries but should never again bow in England. Yet he served the king as chancellor with far more devotion than he served the religious interest of the church. In all this we'll see is one of the greatest and most characteristic of medieval figures in our history and his power was at its fullness more than 40 years after Bosworth Field, right? So the Battle of Bosworth Field is a big triumphal kind of battle, right? And then what happens is life doesn't change, the church doesn't change, the church is very corrupt. This person called Cardinal Wolsey has an illegitimate son and he gives him he also is made into a deacon and he's given them different kinds of darkness and bishoprics and all those kind of things, right? Uh, whatever said over here, right? And that's also a source of wealth, right? Now for many people, uh, even in India today, we know that our temples are source of wealth, right? Yeah, because people give donations, even small one rupees and two rupees um, uh, count a lot in the long run, right? Yeah, and so the churches, the mosques, the temples, all these places where people collect donations, right? They get very wealthy, right? Okay, and uh, that's exactly what happens. And uh, of course, the medieval church is known for all this kind of scandalous behavior because they don't think about the poor. They don't think about anything else. They don't think that uh, the Bible is talking about the poor, but they're talking about living a luxurious and comfortable life. You've got... Uh, the uh, the abbe the abbess right Ma, um, uh, what is the name Madame Eglantine right in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales yeah who belongs to this kind of uh, aristocracy where 
the convent is meant for rich people to go to, not for serving the poor or anything. They're just going to have a good time over there, uh, live there, eat well, go to sleep, say some prayers, etc. Right? Yeah? So that's the Chaucerian kind of description. But Wolsey is a priest and he's also the chancellor, right? And we talked about uh, Henry II actually trying to get uh, uh, Thomas Becket as his chancellor and as the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? Now, by the time you have uh, Henry VIII, uh, Henry, yeah, you have him already uh, getting into this position, right? And of course, we know what happens to him. Another aspect of that half century of calm before the storm was the resist, uh, renaissance of classical scholarship and biblical exegesis under uh, Grocon and Linke College and more, the English friends of Erasmus, right? Their work was more than all Wolsey's pride was uh, preparing the future, but it was not much altering the present, right? Now what they have is there something called uh, the biblical exegesis, that is, they're explaining the Bible, yeah? And they're using something that we already talked about that's called hermeneutics to make the Bible palatable to people, right? And uh, so here you have a lot of these people who are actually working and they are friends of Erasmus and uh, Erasmus is a Dutch humanist uh, who uh, has written this thing called the In Praise of Folly, right? And In Praise of Folly is an interesting book, right? Because it's, yeah, In Praise of Folly, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's an interesting book because Christ is called the supreme uh, fool, right? Yeah, he's a fool of fools, right? Because he doesn't have any wealth, he doesn't have any property, yeah? Yeah, this picks the spirit of the Renaissance is something that, okay, but what is the Renaissance? It's a medieval man, yeah? Bavia, if, even if you say it depicts the spirit of the Renaissance, that's exactly the point that we were trying to make yesterday, right? How do we draw a line between the Renaissance and the Reformation? Yeah? What is the kind of confusion that we have with these two people? Right? Yeah? You get all that together. Yeah? Uh, yes. So, uh, so Erasmus is actually shaping the Renaissance and shaping the church for the anti-clerical revolution. Right? Um, uh, yes. None of those friends thought that their knowledge of the classics and of the Greek Testament would destroy the medieval church, which uh, they hoped to liberalize into reform. More radical was the intention of William Tyndale, as in penury and danger, he translated the Bible into words of power and beauty that unborn millions were to have daily on their lips and to interpret in a hundred different ways disruptive of the past. Right? Now the Bible is being translated and Tyndale's Bible is an important Bible, right? Like Wycliffe's Bible is also an important Bible, yeah? And I think Tim Tyndale uh, was killed, right? Uh, I'm not sure, but I'll check, yeah? In the secure sphere, Henry VII, so Henry VII and all these people did not interfere with the church, right? They did not interfere with the fact that the church was burning people as heretics at the stake, yeah? They did not interfere with the, okay, which was not a good thing, right? Yeah, you can't allow a religion to do what they want when it's against the idea of human consciousness, right? Yeah, and when we talk about Erasmus, he's a Dutch humanist, he's talking about, and he, he actually, uh, in praise of folly, he's talking about the foolishness that people have, right? Yeah, and the, the greatest foolishness is to follow Christ, right? Because it means that you have nothing, right? You're actually going on and you actually believe in possessing nothing, right? Yeah. So uh, that's why he paints Christ as a fool of fools, right? Uh, right. Uh, yeah. In this, in the secular sphere, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Bible now becomes not only a piece of religious text, but it becomes something that's much more than that because it's a kind of an inspiration for people, right? It touches the lives of the people and it's in translation. So then the people know more about the Bible than the priest. Otherwise the priest had total power, right? 
about the religious life of people. Yeah? In the secular sphere, Henry VIII restored order to the countryside and put down retainers. There was an important social change, but it was not the end of the Middle Ages. Rather, it was the belated fulfillment of a hope of medieval Englishmen. One medieval institution, indeed, Parliament, was in grave danger, Henry VII, and under Woolsey, of perishing through disuse. But in England, unlike France and Spain, the medieval Parliament was destined to be revived and strengthened by Henry VIII for modern purposes. So too, another great medieval institution, the English common law, survived the Tudor period to become the basis of modern English life and liberty. Right? So today we think that our parliament is in trouble, the Supreme Court is in trouble, let's see if they survive. That's the question and the challenge today. Right? Yeah, and over here we're talking about how under Henry VII and under Woolsey, right, the English Parliament was almost destroyed. But Henry VIII also brought in changes in the Parliament, which made the Parliament uh, strong, so that it becomes modern. In the early 16th century, English trade, though again on the increase after a period of relative stagnation still ran in its old medieval channels along the coast of northern Europe with a new thrust into the Mediterranean for went of cloth. In spite of Cabot's voyage from Bristol to Newfoundland in the reign of Henry VII, the wider outlook across the Atlantic did not greatly affect Englishmen before Elizabeth was on the throne. Until the reign of her sister Mary, the English were still a French-hating, not a Spaniard-hating people. For the quarrel about the Inquisition and about the possession of the New World had not yet arisen. Right? Yeah. So you have, uh, like India was a Pakistan-hating place. Right? Now it's transformed into a Chinese-hating place. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Yeah. And what happened over here is they hated the French because the French uh, and the French language and all that. And the French had ruled them for 200 years, right? And French, English was not spoken. So the French were hated, right? They didn't learn to hate the Spanish, but slowly they learned to hate the Spanish when the colonies of the Americas are uh, up for grabs, right? And then the question is, who has got more colonies? English, the English, the French, the Spains, the Spanish, the Dutch, who? Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, you have, yeah. Uh, they didn't fight about the Inquisition, right? The Inquisition was burning of people at the stake, right? Burning of people for translating the Bible, okay? Burning of people for uh, a kind of heresy or challenging the the dogma of the church, right? It, uh, dogma of the belief, right? It is indeed useless to look for any date or even any period when the Middle Ages ended in England. All that one can say is that in the 13th century, English thought and society was medieval. And in the 19th century, they were not. Yet, even now, we retain the medieval institutions of the monarchy, right? The peerage, the commons in parliament assembled, the English common law, the courts of justice interpreting the rule of law, the hierarchy of the established church, the parish system, the universities, the public schools and grammar schools. And unless we become a totalitarian state and forget all our English tree, there will be something medieval in our ways of thinking, especially in our ideas that people and corporations have rights and liberties with which the state ought in some degree to respect in spite of the legal uh, omnicompetence of parliament, right? So the question is that there is this laissez-faire or this kind of uh, respect for the business class uh, and the businesses over there and the, uh, the governments don't really interfere with them, right? So he says unless we have a totalitarian system where the government interferes with the businessmen, right? This is something that 
is medieval and will go on, right? So the universities are medieval establishments, right? The, uh, the parishes are medieval establishments and they're not changed very much in the administration or anything. Maybe the universities have, but not uh, much else, right? Uh, and of course, the, the universities are really very old and you can get really old text, etc. Yeah. Um, as to the economic side of things in town, yeah, we are talking about a thousand years. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's more than a thousand years. Uh, we have Oxford and Cambridge, and the other old uh, universities like Aberdeen, and uh, yeah. So there are other places which are also old. It's not only Oxford and Cambridge, right? And that's what a Scots person told me at a bus stop, right? He says, "Well, you only think of Oxford and Cambridge." Leeds, Aberdeen, all these places are also very old universities, right? Yeah, and the university is actually a product of the medieval age, right? And that's something that is interesting. Uh, and it, it, it's interesting also to see that the university is not a product of India, and that's why we're treating the universities very badly, right? Yeah, and of course, we have our own social problems, right? And that's why the university is one of the first victims of all the social unrest that is taking place. In the country, right? We can see that uh, there's very little that's left in universities today, right? And uh, well, we can say it's out of, uh, it's not of local birth, it's not of, uh, in, uh, what's it called? It's not of indigenous making, all those kind of arguments we can act, argue, but what else have we got, right? Have we got a system which can replace it, right? We don't even have thinkers who can actually think through a new system of the university, right? Yeah, which is a very sad and sorry state, right? This is something that was uh, colonial, right? And it's um, it's last legs today, unless there is some change and some government, hopefully in some day, comes and puts it right, right? Yeah, and of course, uh, the parliament and the Supreme Courts are also tottering right in India today and I hope they live right because otherwise I don't know whether the idea of India would li live at all yeah uh, yeah uh, uh, as to the econ economic side of things in town and country Mr. Tony uh, the social historian of the 16th century regards the Tudor epoch as a watershed when things move downwards with every increasing momentum towards the big estates and farms of the 18th and 19th centuries and the industrial capitalism of modern times. This may well be true, but it, it is a question whether the end of the Middle Ages might not as well be sought in the con uh, consummation of economic and social change in the reign of George III as in the Tudor beginnings, right? Now the question is, where do we say that the medieval age ends, right? Is it in, in the Tudor uh, epoch or is it when George III comes in? Again, that's in the 18th century, right? Uh, nor is it fact, nor in fact these things begin first under the Tudors as noted in the former chapters of this book. Capitalism was established in some important trades long before. So too, the emancipation of serfs and some consequent breakups of the medieval manor system had actually been accompanied before uh, even Bosworth Field was fought. Right? So the idea is the change to modernism has already taken place before all these events. Right? So where do we draw the line? Where then shall we place the end of the medieval society and economics in the fourth, 14th and the 16th or the 18th centuries? Perhaps it matters little. What does matter is that we should understand what really happened. It is probable that ere long a new perspective of periods in the past will replace the old. Owing to the mechanization of life, man has changed more in the last hundred years than the previous thousand. Okay, so now that's something else that he's saying. And he's saying that in the previous time, men uh, change very slowly, right? And in the last hundred years, there's a rapid change that is taking place, right? And what happens over here is uh, that's something that we call modern, right? And that's, of course, uh, after 1830, right? 
1830 to 1930, yeah, you can see that massive changes are taking place, right? And when you talk from 1930 to today, again we have massive changes taking place, right? And that's an important point that Trevelyan is bringing up because he's actually talking about how slow change is in from the time of Chaucer till the time of Shakespeare, right? Yeah, and even from Shakespeare till the 19th century, right? Not much changes very uh, quickly, very slowly things change, right? Yeah, and uh, with the church, of course, it doesn't, right? Uh, but as far as the politics is concerned, this is a very slow change, right? As far as administration is concerned, it's a very slow change, right? Now, the colonies bring in a lot of change from the bottom because the people who are uh, not very rich, they come to the colonies, right? The rich people stay off in England, right? The poor uh, second brothers, as we talk about in law of primogeniture, right? The second sons, uh, the third sons, the fourth sons, or, or anybody of that kind, right? They would be the ones who come to India, right? As soldiers, as priests, as uh, lawyers, right? So those are the kinds of professions they have. And they come over here and then they go back very rich, which is again some kind of a reversal, right? Yeah, and uh, the whole social order of England is changed again when people from the colonies go back and settle down in England and uh, these actually create a lot of trouble, right? Trouble for the local people, right? And of course you can't do anything. If somebody who you think is low and has gone to India and come back and is very rich after they come back, right? Then what are you going to do about it? Nothing, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, where shall we place the end of medieval society and economics? In the 14th, the 16th, the 18th centuries, perhaps it matters little. What does it matter uh, if we... Uh, 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 what does matter is that we should understand what really happened. It is probable that ere long a new perspective of periods in the past will replace the old. Owing to the mechanization of life, man has changed more in the last hundred years than in the previous thousand. It is not unlikely, therefore, that the real beginning of modern uh, times, if modern times are to include our own, will be allocated to the growth of the Industrial Revolution, right? Rather than to the Renaissance and Reformation, right? So he's actually, I'm not happy at all at the way he's done this because the Renaissance, for, for me, is still the greatest age. Uh, or I would say the two periods are very important, right? Uh, Elizabeth's, uh, Elizabeth I's reign and Queen Victoria's reign, right? Because these are the times when England changes massively socially, culturally, politically, religiously, right? Yeah, uh, maybe religiously not so much in Victoria, uh, Victoria's reign, but... Uh, in Elizabeth's reign, definitely, yeah, there was a there huge amounts of Victorian changes. Yes, uh, you also have the counter uh, the counter Reformation, which takes place in the Victorian age, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Your question regarding the text, how how when can I present it? Which text? Which text are you talking about? Continuing traveling English social history. Which one? Uh, English uh, social history, so the current one that we are reading. Yeah, so what do you what do you want to do with that? So like I have a little question about it. Yeah, so ask the question. Yes, sir. Yeah. So like you also pointed out there are certain things that he has not written, like certain things you don't agree with. Yeah. And I would just uh, I just wanted to ask you that like, you you've also given us in the assignment uh, uh, to talk about the political and the social formation and I understand how to reach and how to like actually go around writing about that. I just wanted to like uh, confirm with you this one thing. Trevelyan does not clearly talk about political distinctions because his main focus in this book is to write about the social formation. Yeah. And Starting from the Lord of Manor and feudalism, he goes on to explain how it did not actually change during Chaucer's Yeah, but the, the question... Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
how, how it did not change during Chaucer's lifetime, but it actually evolved and he talks about the revolution and everything. This is not a very streamlined notion of history from the political perspective. And to get a better understanding, if I cite some other source while writing my assignment, is that... Oh, you are talking about the assignment. Oh, yeah, can we talk about the assignment later? Yeah, I thought it was a question about the text. Okay? Yeah, but the assignment, we'll talk about it later, right? Because this is an interruption. Yeah. So, explain about the assignment as well as the text. Like, is See, like no. The, the point that you're mistaking is that what is the political? Yeah? The political, you can't say that he's not saying talking about the political when he's talking about the manner. Yeah? Yeah? So, the manor house, the politics of the... Uh, the serf, right, and the ma uh, the lord of the manor and the serf and the villain and all those kind of things, that's very political, right? Yeah. So you can't uh, dismiss it and saying that that's not political. That is political. That's social and political together, right? Yeah. And we might like to remember, we might like to remember that when we talk about uh, Aristotle, okay, when Aristotle says. The human being is a political animal, or zoon politicon, right? Social and political are merged, right? It's not saying that this is social and this is political, right? Actually, they're very difficult. It's very difficult even today to do that, right? We, you can say uh, every transaction is political, right? Yeah, the the caste system is a political system, as it is even in in its present form, right? The university system is still. Uh, has got a political system, right? And some people gain, some people exploited all sorts of things, right? So you can't say that the political is not written by trivial. No. When you're talking about the social, it implies the political, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you read Austin's novels, if you read Hardy's novels, yeah, if you read uh, Jane, uh, George Eliot's novels, right? You'll find that the question of the political and the social, right? Is very, very, very neatly interwoven, right? Of course, what he says over here is true, right? How does it matter who's the king? People's life, uh, lives go on. The ruling goes on. Unless you have an authoritarian rule which says, let's change everything, like we have today in India, right? Yeah, the government wants to change everything, right? Which has been followed for 70 years or somewhere there, right? Yeah, so they, they just want to... Uh, upturn the apple cart using Bernard Shaw's expression, right? Yeah. Uh, now that perhaps happened in England only at the time of Cromwell. Yeah. They've not seen totalitarian rule uh, after that, right? Yeah. So Cromwell's rule, Henry VIII's rule, uh, though he gets in modernity and all, that's what he says over here. But uh, that's again a kind of a monarchy which is not really a good monarchy. Right? Yeah. And uh, uh, if you go on, I mean, what, what example is set if the king goes on uh, killing his wives? Right? Yeah, of course, it's through uh, a political process and through legal process. All those kind of things are there. Okay? Because by the time Henry VIII comes up, uh, you couldn't, uh, even if you are the king, you couldn't uh, uh, go and uh, overturn the law. Right? Yeah. So that's something that's important, which hasn't happened in Indian history. Right? We still see that the laws are being subverted. Right? We see, still see that crimes are being done every day. Right? And in spite of the courts, right, uh, the courts are uh, very frightened of the kind of political powers that we have today. Right? And that I think we all know. Right? Yeah. And uh, this has not happened in England. Oh, I think it has not happened in England, except in Cromwell's time, right? Yeah, and Henry VIII's time also was a bad time, yeah? Because all these people like Thomas More, uh, Cranmer, uh, Woolsey, all these kind of people were put to death ultimately, right? Yeah, and they were very powerful people who ran Henry VIII's establishment, right? Yeah, uh, so some people talk about Thomas More is called a saint, right, today? Right? Yeah, but some people will say that he, he uh, allowed a lot of uh, uh, burnings, right? Yeah, uh, heretic burnings and all those kind of things, right? 
and that is when you can't think of emergency at all, right? Yeah. Or Chaucer, uh, Thomas Beckett also, right? Yeah. Thomas Beckett is what Chaucer's, uh, which we talked about yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if I've answered your question about the the text and the exam, right? Uh, that's not my purpose over here. Yeah. I was not asking uh, the thing that you misinterpreted it actually. No, but you talked about the assignment, so I thought that you were talking about that. No, so like, uh, that was just one aspect of what I had asked. Like, about, I was just building up to it, but I'm going to be more direct now. Uh, what I observed in the book is that the many historical events that can be presented to a student in a streamlined manner, in a very orderly manner, has not been followed by Trevelyan. And he talks about the social formation and social change as well as the political influences it has over the yeah. land. Hmm. There is just this one little thing that is pretty obvious there and that is uh, the lack of context. We, there is, because he talks about parliament and uh, I really did not know like when was the parliament built and then I came to know it was in the 13th century with the birth of um, Magna Carta. The Magna Carta. And also about the uh, revolt of the serfs of the peasants in 1881, yeah. if I'm correct about the name. No, but that's, that's he's mentioned. He's mentioned that. Yes, sir. He has mentioned it. But it, is, it was like a little vague, and I also had to get into some detail. So while I'm uh, critiquing his work, not just that, and not believing every single aspect of history, he tells me to. Am I correct from where I stand when I say that? He has been a little vague with his ideology and the fact that he names each age after some influential figure of literature like Chaucer's age, Caxton's age. Like can we say that it's not all that much about the people in his point of view? No, uh, that's not true because Caxton's age and Chaucer's age is about the people. Yeah, if you read the text, right, as we have read it very closely, right, it's about the people and social formation and social changes, right. This is the first bit that he's actually talking about the kings coming in and he's talking about it in a very uh, quick kind of manner, right, yeah. He's not, probably my quarrel with him over here is that he's not going into it in absolute depth, right, because He's looking at it as a kind of prelude to this idea of the anti-clerical revolution, right? Yeah, and that perhaps is more interesting and maybe that should have been talked about, right? Yeah, uh, and yeah, and of course you have to, I think we'll have to read through it because we, uh, it's important for the age, right? So we have to read up, actually up with Shakespeare, do we have to read till there? No. We stop here, is it? So we have to read up until Tudor's and like in the, the, we have to read until 16th century, like we have to stop after 15th century because okay. the 16th century is covered in the other code. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, so uh, we have to stop here, right? Yeah, fine. Yeah, but what your pa point is valid that he's not talking about historical developments, right? Yeah, and uh, he talks about Chaucer and the age of Chaucer, but he's not about Chaucer, right? What Trevelyan is talking, he is not talking about Chaucer. Pardon? So that is, so that is one thing that I noticed and it really like, it was something that of quite an intrigue to me because although he calls it Chaucer's age, he discusses the peasants and the Lord Man, Lord Manor and humans and he even discusses the Greenwood outlaws, Greenwood outlaws. Like yeah. Robin, Robinson, uh, Robin Hood and all of that. Yes. Okay, yeah. Can we just finish then we'll come back. Yeah. Because what happens right, is, uh, yeah, we just uh, go through this. It is of course the Renaissance and the Reformation. So my point is when you have the idea of the Renaissance and the Reformation, there's a lot of confusion among the people, right? Yeah. And you can't say that this is the Renaissance, this is the Reformation, right? That's why I gave you the lecture yesterday uh, about Europe and Martin Luther and etc. Right? Because what happens over there is this is something that is actually shaking the whole kind of establishment that had existed till then. Right? Yeah? 
So when you have Martin Luther, and of course it's 500 years, yeah, uh, no, not 500 years, it's, uh, it's 1,500 years after Christ, right, yeah, so it's already taken 1,500 years for Christianity to be established in Europe besides the early 300 or 400 years where the Christians were put to death, yeah, uh, that's by the Romans and uh, Nero and all those kind of things, right, so uh, this has taken a long time, right, so 1,500 years is a long period of history that we're talking about, right? Yeah, and the idea is from uh, uh, so when you talk about the 13th century, 14th century, right? Uh, these are very far away from us, right? Today, right? And uh, of course, the uh, Oxford University was established in 10 or 11 somewhere there, right? Yeah, and uh, what is interesting is uh, they're still continuing, right? Yeah, though they've changed. They modified themselves, they've changed, uh, they've modernized, all those kind of things have happened, right? But uh, the, the fact that these are institutions, maybe uh, universities from Australia have taken them over, all those kind of things are there, right? But they're still uh, the universities which count, right? That if a standard has been maintained, right? So I think that's important, right? And maybe they had their doubts, right? Uh, not because of lack of scholarship, but maybe because of the bureaucracy interfering and all that, which perhaps they haven't interfered as much as our government has interfered with, right? Yeah, they're interfering with the universities and they're trying to destroy it, right? Yeah, but this is something that didn't happen over there, right? Uh, why did it not happen is a question, because first the universities were open only for priests and for noblemen, right? And then what happened is slowly the universities uh, open up for other people. That's after the University of London was built for um, the uh, the business class of people, by the business class of people, for other people who are not clergymen and not priests, right? Uh, not clergymen and not nobles, right? Yeah, so uh, that's something important that we have to think about, right? So when we're talking about the Reformation and the Renaissance, right, uh, then what happens over there is uh, these are things that are happening together, right? So you can't, the historian might like to say, this happened in the Reformation, right? But the Reformation and the Renaissance are overlapping, yeah? And uh, one is social, one is church, right? The Reformation is church, and the Renaissance is a kind of social movement, right? So how does one influence the other? That's important, right? And uh, I think uh, more should be devoted to that, right? But of course, he's devoted the whole chapter of the anti-clerical revolution, which I think is important, right? Um, it is a course of the Renaissance and the Reformation of which people are chiefly thinking when they ascribe the end of the Middle Ages to the 16th century. In the spheres of thought and religion, of clerical power and privilege, we may indeed say that the medieval scheme of things was abolished in Tudor England. Uh, yet, even this is not true without qualification about the land that Elizabeth ruled, right? Yeah, so uh, the medieval scheme of things still go on, right? It's like talking about colonial times, pre-colonial times, and post-colonial times, right? Yeah, uh, for instance, in Karnataka, you have people in the time of the British, right? Where all the documents are written in Kannada, right? And uh, these are land documents, right? So, and you have this seal and stamp in Canada, okay, in the British time, right? So you might like to think about that. So a lot of the systems didn't change, right? You had, this I'm talking about Karnataka, but you have other parts of India, which kept two systems that were, uh, systems that were uh, in vogue, right? Yeah, like you have the tenancy thing, right? Where you have the modern Indian kind of understanding of tenants and you have the pre-modern uh, kind of understanding of tenancy, right? Yeah, where tenants were there for 300, 400 years, right? And then with Indira Gandhi, all that changes, right? Because uh, the idea of uh, the Urban Land Sealing Act, the land reform movement, all those kind of things come in, right? Yeah, so it's not that suddenly they come in, they come in very slowly, right? And when we're talking about a country with such a long history, right, uh, then you get uh, a lot of, it's not easy, right? Neither about India, nor about 
bit, right? Yeah, that's why we have all these problems in history, right? And of course, in India, we have the idea of looking at myth and history and confusing myth with history, right? Uh, which I think uh, I think we dealt with yesterday when we are talking about why is there no confusion about myth and history uh, with this, uh, though they have this idea of enumenism, uh, uh, right? Uh, which is talking about myth and history together, right? Uh, they get up that and they get these whole things like excavating the sites where they think that the Iliad and Odyssey were actually there, right? They're actually thinking of the India, Iliad and Odyssey as real, actual people living, right? And not a work of fiction, right? Yes, yeah, so some people still go on to that kind of trips, right? Yeah, and uh, you might like to think about all that and our own problems over here in India where people cannot think of the Ramayana as myth, right? So that's what is a word for it in Sanskrit, right? Yeah. Uh, the Brahman, the Mahabharata, these are myths, right? Yeah, but people think that they're real, right? Yeah, so all these kind of issues which have cropped up, uh, actually, maybe they one has to look at many, many old times, right? Yeah, and we talk about, in India, you talk about the small communities, right? You talk about little communities and little gods and goddesses and little family worships, right? Yeah, which are being swept away with this idea of uh, getting this whole nation under one kind of religion, right? Yeah, that's again a problem that is being faced, right? And a lot of the little deities are going to be swept away, right? Uh, uh, whether they'll be absolutely swept away or not by the laws and by all these things, that's a question, right? Because people still go on doing all these things, right? You can't, you can't rule all these things out as far as society is concerned. Uh, yeah. The Protestantization uh, and secularization, uh, secularizing of England was not complete till after the Puritan Rebellion and the Whig Tory Revolution, or rather it has never yet been made complete, right? Yeah. Now the question is, when you're talking about the Protestant, uh, the Protestant religion and Elizabeth being the, uh, the queen who also is the defender of the faith and the head of the Anglican Church, right? Now, how is that and the secularism of England practiced, right? Yeah, and secularization is a very, very important kind of movement even now, though they still call themselves a religious state, right? They still, uh, they still call themselves a monarchy, right? Now, these are social things that have kept happening, right? And they've not stopped, right? Uh, I remember when Rushdie wrote his satanic verses and there were riots in Bradford, right? Because there's a huge Pakistani population there and uh, they were very upset with whatever Rushdie did, right? Yeah, and uh, the Home Minister went and tried to uh, calm the riots down, right? Yeah, and then somebody said, well, uh, Rushdie should be killed, right? And he says, well, and very, very politely, as a British uh, man has too, right? He said very politely, he says, excuse me, uh, that's what we don't believe in our nation. People have the right to write what they want, right? And to speak what they want, right? And if you find that is uncomfortable, you're free to go anywhere. But if you stay here, you can't ask for somebody's death because they've written something, right? Yeah. So uh, that's something which has to do with secularization, right? And remember that England is a place where people have been killed for religion, right? And it's not killing in the past, it's killing Irish people who are Catholics and Protestants even today, right? Yeah, and of course that's perhaps gone down a little, but that still remains. It's not gone off, right? Yeah, and that's before uh, Queen Elizabeth the first, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, so you have all these old kinds of problems with the Irish, the English, the Welsh, the Scottish, right? Yeah, and the whole idea of who is greater, right? So these are things that I think have not been uh, changed even now, right? Uh, so, but at the same time, the modernization has come in with secularism, with people getting more educated, challenging the code, because the universities are universities, right? A university is where you think about your own country, you think about your own kind of way of doing things, right? And the change comes from the university, right? Yeah, so that's what uh, our government doesn't want. 
right? They think the university is a place where uh, people go in as donkeys and come out as donkeys, right? And that's the, uh, the nature of a university normally, right? So we don't really have freedom of thinking in the university and uh, freedom of uh, coming up with new thought in the university, right? When that happens, then we'll have real universities, but I don't know whether that's ever going to happen anymore, right? Because not only of that, because we have uh, modern technology coming in, different kind of social formations coming in, all those things will be uh, also a kind of problem that we face, right? The Elizabethan system, the grand finale of the Tudor triumph was as much a triumph of the Renaissance as of the Reformation. The two become one, and partly for that reason, Shakespeare's England had a charm and a lightness of heart, a free aspiring of mind and spirit, not to be found elsewhere in the harsh Jesuit Calvinist Europe of that day. Right? Yeah, now that's a question again because uh, uh, he, he's talking about the idea of uh, what's this called? Uh, the idea of the Renaissance and the Reformation, which both come together and you get a lot of freedom in England, right? Now, uh, of course, uh, Trevelyan, to be generous to him and uh, to be fair to him rather than generous, right, is that uh, what is happening with him is he's talking about the Renaissance and the Reformation which come together, right? So, in Shakespeare's day, Shakespeare's England, the Renaissance and the Reformation at the high point, right? And they actually work out, they transform themselves, everybody, you, so the idea of the Protestant England is a great thing, right? And of course, uh, in, in due course of time, in Elizabeth's time, of course, the Catholics were under the carpet, right? Uh, underground, actually, right? And uh, it's only afterwards, after the 18th century, that uh, these things are suspended and they get freedom. Otherwise, we know about Pope, uh, Alexander Pope. Alexander Pope was not allowed to go to college and university because he was Catholic, right? So, you have these kind of total kind of, and uh, what, uh, what, Chos uh, what Trevelyan says in the earlier part that total totalitarian kinds of states haven't happened. Yeah, for a lot, a lot of people, Henry VIII, Elizabeth's reign, right? Uh, were very totalitarian, really totalitarian rates, right? Especially for the minorities like the, uh, the Catholics and the Jews, right? Yeah. And maybe the Puritans also because the Puritans uh, uh, left England, right? So he is talking about England and he is talking in a very uh, kind of patriotic manner about his country, right? So yeah, we have to think about that also as we are not from his country, right? Yeah. And of course, what happens with the Jesuits is uh, the Jesuits are these liberal kind of people, right? Uh, and they find a different way of negotiation with modernity, right? In fact, you have this uh, poet called John Dunn in the Elizabethan age and the Jacobian age, right? Yeah. And he is the one who actually has three uncles who are Jesuits, right? So the Jesuits had already reached England, right? And uh, they are people who would question the authority of a lot of monarchs because they were thinking people, right? Yeah. So that's one of the things that happened, right? And I don't know why he's talking about the Jesuits and the Calvinists because the Jesuits didn't really have so much power in Europe, right? They were thrown out of the church uh, right in the beginning, right? They went underground and they still managed to survive, right? So, yeah, of course, I was educated under the Jesuits, so I know a little about them, right? Uh, and at the same auspicious moment, England's old song of the sea became a new ocean, ocean song. The Elizabethan adventures, Drake, Forbisher, Hawkins, Raleigh and the rest were sailing the wide uh, world discovering islands far away, opening to, the, uh, to their countrymen at home, new realms of hope and fancy, committing indeed crimes in Ireland and in slave trade, but without knowing that they were crimes or what their dreadful 
the dreadful consequences were to be in the time, uh, the deep of time. The music of the Elizabethan madrigal and the lyric poetry to which it was wedded expressed the re uh, reasonable joy uh, in life of a people freed from medieval and yet and not yet oppressed by Puritan complexities and fears, rejoicing in nature and the countryside in whom, in whose lap they had the felicity to live, right? So the, he's saying what happens is the idea that England was uh, a great nation of the sea came only in the Elizabethan age, right? And that's by and large true, though you already have uh, a person going to Newfoundland and that's in Henry the seventh time. Yeah. So that's already there, call it uh, whatever his name is, right? Yeah. So uh, when we when we're talking about uh, the idea of music, right? Uh, and the idea of the madrigal and the idea of the uh, wedding. Uh, so the idea of different kinds of music being put together, right? And uh, the idea of the Puritans also being very scared of this idea of influence, right? For the Puritans, music and uh, dancing and uh, finery and enjoyment, right? These are things that were not liked and you have the, uh, the extreme form of it in Cromwell's rule, right? Though the Puritans uh, in England have produced two important writers, one is John Bunyan and the other one is Milton, right? John Milton and John Bunyan. So these are two Puritan, Puritanical poets who become uh, uh, writers who become very important for the whole uh, uh, for the whole amount of the Puritan age, right? Yeah. But uh, what happens is the process of the Protestant uh, and getting more and more Protestant, right, is something that perhaps happen, but of course the Protestant church in England, the Anglican church, doesn't real, really change much from the Catholic church, right? Yeah, and in fact, in uh, very recently, there are a lot of people who are Anglicans who joined the Catholic church because uh, uh, the Anglican church said, we should ordain women, right? Yeah, and the Catholic church is still very conservative and said, no, we don't do that, right? Yeah, so uh, all these uh, very high bishops and all these people, I read that maybe one or two years ago, right? They've all moved out, right? And uh, so that's very, very conservative, right? So that's something else that we must think of, right? And if we look at Horton and Spillers, they actually tell us, look, uh, what changed in Luther's time, he didn't remove statues from the church, right? He just wanted a few things done. Like the liturgy should be in in the language of the local people, right? All those kind of things, married priests, all those kind of things. He uh, said some of them, right? Yeah. But the churches, the Lutheran churches, didn't change, right? Um, they still had statues in the church, statues of all the saints, right? All those things they didn't pull down, right? Uh, neither did the English. The same old churches, which were Roman Catholic, became Protestant churches, right? In fact, the same old saint. There is uh, Thomas Beckett, who was a Roman Catholic saint, now becomes a Protestant saint, right? Yeah, and not in Chaucer's time, much later, right? Yeah, so uh, that's something very strange and funny, and you begin to wonder how could they call themselves Protestants, right? They're not, they're not very different from the Catholic Church at all, right? In only some ways, they've changed, right? Yeah, and uh, otherwise their practice and rituals are almost the same, and they're very, very conservative, right? They're not... They've not become modern in some senses. The the uh, the ordaining of women priests, I think that was a modern thing, and they couldn't put up with it, so they came to the Catholic Church. Uh, that's what it looks like, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So what when we talk about English culture, we talk about this conservative idea, which has come from the medieval world, right? Uh, all this found its perfect expression before it passed away in Shakespeare's plays. In them, we see the immense step forward that had been taken in the realm of thought and feeling, away from the ancient limits. The play of Hamlet, that at least in modern, is modern, also in the English church services, every parish 
and in the wide study of the English Bible, in the homes of rich and poor, we can say the English mind and imagination has